Welcome to the Third City Christian Church Podcast. This week's message is Controversial Jesus Part 2, My Kind of Fasting, recorded Sunday, February 20th, 2022. If you have a story about how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending an email to podcast at thirdcityc.org. Now here's Scott with today's message. We are making our way through the Gospel of Mark, a book that was probably the first gospel written by anyone. There's four, if you don't know that, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, it's a book that is based on the, the input that Peter gave the gospel writer Mark. And so it's kind of Peter's viewpoint of Jesus. We're calling this particular section the controversial Jesus. And what we see in this section is that Jesus consistently raised controversy. I think many people view Jesus as a mild-mannered, soft guy who talked about love all the time and uh, never stepped into challenging conversations, always tried to build peace consensus with people, when in fact, that's not the Jesus of the gospel. The truth is, from the very beginning, he deliberately provoked hard conversations so that people would change. He, he never failed to point out hypocrisy and how people tend to use rules instead of their relationship with God to prove their worth. And so we're going to see this. And I think we need to talk about Jesus this way to balance those false impressions that we might have. We need to keep the entire picture of Jesus in balance. Because on the other hand, he was no woke revolutionist, okay? He never used violence. He never used vengeful behavior to get his way. But make no mistake about it, he came to claim humanity from evil. And he had to battle to do it. Last week in a embarrassing moment, Dan Walter bared his soul to you admitting he's a Miami Dolphins fan, (laughs) which then that was perfect because he talked about being ostracized in the world, and and truly, Miami fan can never talk about football with anyone, because why could they? So that would create some segmentation in their life. Well, Jesus is, is... is going to be engaging now in this passage with some tax collect, excuse me, with some Pharisees. And the Pharisees were already ticked off at Jesus because he had welcomed people like tax collectors into his kingdom. And so he, he was getting pressure. He was under scrutiny. He was being watched by the religious elite of the day. And that opens up what happens here in Mark chapter 2. If you have your scripture, you have a journal, you can open that or you can watch on the screen here. The disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting, fasting. And they came to him and said, why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Fasting. Not a particularly big issue in our day, unless you're on some diet where it requires that you fast for periods of time. I've, I've done that. I do that a little bit. So I understand what that is, believe it or not. But fasting biblically, what is that? Well, I'm going to boil it down to this. It was always a response, never a ritual. I'm talking about the Old Testament now. It was a response to crisis. It was a response to repentance or mourning or something like that. So David fasted when his child had died. He was in mourning. The nation Israel fasted and they asked for repentance. 
So a response, not a ritual. In the first century, though, it had become something different. It had become a religious ritual practiced by elite and self-righteous priests. The Pharisees were proud that they fasted twice a week. They fasted every Monday and Thursday. That is where Taco Tuesday came from. (laughs) I made that up. Fasting became an opportunity to judge others from a posture of spiritual arrogance. So what was meant to be a sign of brokenness or of grief or of vulnerability before God had become a measuring stick for them and others. Let's read on and see what happens, how Jesus answers these concerns that he, he were, his disciples were not fasting like the Pharisees and John's disciples. And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. In other words, he's saying, something new is happening here, guys. Get in on it. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. No, new wine must be put into new wineskins. So what Jesus does, and this is a bigger picture than just fasting, okay? He, 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 he turns to us and he says, people have a tendency to turn legitimate actions into rituals. He was not against fasting because we know he fasted. We already talked about that in chapter one where he, he fasted for 40 days, It wasn't some ritual to him. It wasn't some show of holiness for him. It wasn't some command to be followed for him. No, when he fasted, it was an action because he was preparing for the greatest three years in the history of humanity when he would go to a cross to save us from our sins. Now, what does this have to do with you and me? I mean, what do we have to say? about? What does this teach us about God? What does it show us about us individually and even the church? Well, I think there's several things, and, and I'm going to point out three. Here's the first thing. God wants our obedience, not rituals. Now, help me with this, please. Can some man-made traditions and rituals be helpful? Yes or no? I would say yes. Of course they can. Like, for instance, every day I take a medication uh, that my doctor, who is a very competent physician, says, this will help you. And so every day, this is what I do. I drag my sorry bones out of bed. I look in in the mirror and I say, there's no medication for that. (laughs) I grab that little bottle out. I shake one out. I pop it, as we like to say. I'd take some water to chase it or whatever I'm drinking that morning, which it's always water. And then I, I eat something too because, you know, the medication says eat something with this for some reason. So I do it. 
That little ritual is important to me because if I don't do that at the same time every day, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to forget to take my... And it's a life-giving medication. It helps me to be healthy, I, I guess. That's what I'm told, and I believe it. So let me ask you, is it commanded that, for instance, a person believes in Christ and be baptized in the Scripture? Yes, it is. Is it commanded that we're to have a regular pattern of worship? So we should have a time when we gather with other believers, and whatever, whatever that means for us, you know, in COVID it's been a little weird, but we still try to do it. We gather together, we, we open up the scriptures, we praise him with singing and music, because that helps us to have our hearts right for him. Uh, we share in the Lord's Supper, which uh, the New Testament Christians did themselves every week. We, we give, you know, we find a time to be generous. These are traditions that can help us stay grounded. And the New Testament encourages these traditions. All of these commands do have a form of ritualism with them. So if God tells us to do something, I think you would agree we should do it. But I don't know how you see all those things I just mentioned. Like, I pray you don't see them as some checklist. You go, yep, I did that this week. Yep, that, yep, 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 good. I mean, you know, I think what happens is that we sometimes, too, look at those things and say, I need to do those things this way or else it's not right. See, the problem is not the ritual. The problem is when I think the ritual gives me a license to live like hell six days a week and be religious on one. Or like even an hour a week, I'm going to do the right thing. 167 hours a week, I don't have any accountability. And I think what Jesus might say to us as he was to these Pharisees in essence is, if you're living like hell six days and a week, 120, you know, 167 hours a week, and, and you're being religious, but then you're treating everybody like crap for the rest of the week, shame on you. I mean, how can you be so concerned about an hour a week of worship and so unconcerned about obedience to Christ in the other 167 hours? Larry, Larry Osborne talks about this uh, in a sermon that I heard from him. And he says, when we rely on religious rituals, there's several things that happen. One is, I play God for a fool. As if God is up there, and I'm kind of hiding out down here, and if I do these religious things that he'll notice, and then he'll let me go. Like, he doesn't see any, like, so I have all these closet things going on, and he doesn't see any of those. You know, when I was a kid, there's a show that most of us over the age of 55 remen, remember fondly called Leave It to Beaver. Anyone? Leave It to Beaver? Yeah, there's some beaverites out there. I see you. Yeah, great show. I'd come home from school, you know, get home at 3.30 whatever, pop on the old boob tube and get a glass of milk, and there was my friend Beave every, every day for, like, 15 years. No, it's great. Love that guy. So anyway, there was this character in the Beavs show and Leave it to Beaver. Remember this guy, Eddie Haskell? Remember him? He was like the ultimate kiss-up. You know, like, like the, the Cleaver parents, they thought he walked on water for a while until they figured him out. So, you know, he'd come in like, acting like a little angel, Mr. and Mrs. Cleaver. 
But you know, when, when he was away from them with the Beeb and with Wally, he was creating all kinds of junk, all kinds of bad behavior. And I was thinking about this like in context of my life and yours and maybe some others. And in, in our world, we, we have people like that. Like you go to work and you have that, that person who's all, the, the, the higher ups, they love them because they're always kissing up to them, but they're spitting down at you. And the people on the level that you're at, you're like, I can't stand that guy, you know? Or, or even in the church. I mean, I'm going I'm to say I've, I've run into some Eddie Haskell Christians along the way. People who like, you know, it just seems like they're big on following rules and traditions. And they always talk about what they're doing in their traditional church setting. And they're checking off all these boxes. And they look good with the religion stuff. But their character, their heart... It just isn't right. It's, there's, there's something missing, and, it's, and, it's, and it's, it's foul, to be honest. It's, it's not, you know, it's a person who spits down on other people because they're doing the scriptural stuff, but maybe not the personal stuff very well. And that becomes, well, it becomes toxic. Another thing that Larry Osborne says is we become foolishly arrogant when that's our way. Because there's nothing more foolish than to try to portray myself as if God needs me or as if somehow what I'm doing somehow replaces God in my life, like my actions, my religion. Now, some of you, you're the kind of person who, for the most part, everything you do is competitive. And, and believe me, I relate to you because I can be that way myself. So, for instance, you like to win, and you probably do a, do a lot of winning in life. You try to be the best that you can be at whatever you do because it's a competition. And my guess is that when you started following Jesus, that trait did not change. It just kept kind of overlaid over your Christianity, your walk with God. So you still strive for a high level of doing spiritual disciplines, and, and being, you know, a person who's recognized as following the, the ways of the religion. And, and by the way, I'm not criticizing that in itself, just to say this. When the result of running faster and further than others in your walk with Jesus has you looking down and spitting on them, shame on you. The Bible says in Proverbs 6 that there are seven things the Lord hates and on top of the list, he says, I hate it when you have haughty eyes. That means arrogance. When you look down on others. If your disciplines produce pride, that makes you poison. Those Pharisees, I don't think they wanted to be that way, but they were that way. Their obedience to ritual was more important to them than their obedience to God. And it made them spitters. Here's another thing Larry Osborne says, it, then that makes God angry. I want you to imagine this with me. Imagine, you know, we just came through uh, Valentine's Day, right? February 14th. Any of you guys missed that? Don't raise your hand. It's, it's already too late. Don't even try. Okay, you're just going to make it worse. Uh, anyway, great day, great day of love, right? So just imagine this guy with me. So he falls in love with a woman and he just goes over the top with everything. I mean, uh, social media, you know, he's always like, this is, you know, and he lavishes praise on her every chance he gets. 
He buys her ring he should not be able to afford and probably can't. You know, she wears it around and she's got to show it like this, you know. She's like, hey, look at this thing. You know, all of, you know, everyone's, woo, woo, you know. Uh, you know, when he's in public with her, he's just the perfect gentleman. You know, always opens the door, pulls the chair out, puts it back. You know, ask, at, lets her order first. You should do that, guys. It's important to do that. Uh, perfect gentleman. Kind of guy that all the wives, when they go out for dinner with this couple, they say, after, you know, on the ride home, to their, she says to her husband, why can't you be more like Hugh? Because the guy's, you know, he's got the public persona that nobody can match. But Hugh's had a number of affairs. Hugh is addicted to porn. Hugh, he tends to rage at her when she doesn't do things just the way he likes to do them. Hugh likes to keep her into this box that Hugh has created for her. Now let me ask you, is Hugh a good husband? Or is he the husband from hell? Which one? That could describe many a person who claims to be Christian in the realm of Christianity. From the outward appearance, you walk in the door and everybody goes, there's Hugh, everybody loves Hugh, right? Because Hugh's, you know, the guy that's kind of up front and he's doing the things and, you know, he has, he's very nice to people and, you know, he, he seems to, to have, a, you know, a, you know, some spiritual life that seems to be admirable maybe. I don't know, he's got these ideal things going on in his life, but behind the scenes, he, he's a divider. You know, he's creating controversy with people. He's, he's uh, you know, he's, he's trying to get ahead of others. He's trying to run things, or he's, you know, he, he's manipulating. He's, he's, he, maybe he's an adulterous hypocrite in the church, okay? And, and so Hugh can fool, fool you and me, but he's not going to fool God. As a matter of fact, here's what Isaiah 1 talks about with people like that. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. So he's talking about these religious things, these traditional things people do, but the heart that's not right behind it. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations, you know, church services. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts, your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. You, they have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Now, are we commanded to gather? We are. Are we commanded to give offerings? Yes, we are. Not for the sake of the credit we're supposed to cash in on for ourselves, are we instructed to get together and worship and the, not for the sake of somehow thinking we're the ones who are being praised and that we're going to get something out of this and that, you know, hopefully God will like it too. He says, I hate that kind of thing with all my being. Are we supposed to pray? Of course we are. But if we think that God exists to do our bidding, what does he say? He says, I hide my eyes from you even when you pray all the time, even when your prayers are many. I mean, do you see what I'm saying here? Here's another thing that we need to understand about our posture before God when it comes to ritual. God cares more about the fruit, not the watering schedule. Our human nature is to substitute simple obedience for checklists and rituals. 
And then we try to hide things in the secret closet that we don't think God can touch when, in fact, he knows about that stuff too. And so, you know, again, I mean, I'll bring it back to where we are today. So we still do the, so many of the things ritualistically or at least religiously that, that they've done for, from time immemorial, right? So we gather together, we sing, we give, we, we commune, we do these things, all good things. But they cannot replace the obedient heart. What is the fruit? What is it that God wants to come from our life and to, to then be manifest in every moment of our life, not just the one hour a day we gather here, but rather the 167 hours that we operate and worship outside of this place and the kingdom of God and the, what we're called to be. I want to show you a passage that's very familiar, but I think it shows us the heart and it shows us the expectation. It's in 1 Corinthians 13. This is the New Testament. This is Paul describing the kind of love that Jesus calls us to. Verse 1 through 3, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm a noisemaker, that's all. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, look, honestly, I kind of wish that passage stopped right there. Because I, I think, actually, I can match up pretty well with that passage. Like, you know, it talks about speaking, and I do that, and it talks about, you know, understanding the mysteries and knowledge of God's truth. And I, you know, as a preacher, I, I'm getting there, you know, and so I can do that. Uh, it talks about being generous to people, and I think I have my moments when that works out pretty well, too. So I can say, let's just stop right there. That'd be easy. Let's read on, though, because we, should, we need to. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. You know, it's, not, it's not boastful. It, it's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It, it's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. Always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I don't know about you. I read that list and I say, I'm toast. I'd rather say, no, I read the Bible every day. I go to church every week. Uh, I even go to church on Wednesdays. Come to think of it, I go to church every day. I work here. I've been rooted. I'm, I'm doing rhythms. I'm in, involved with the rhythms thing that we were promoting. I haven't sponsored little Diana at the Karabongi School. I haven't missed communion in six weeks. The checklist is easier, friend. That's what the Pharisees thought. They were right. It's often harder to answer, am I treating people right? Am I being patient and kind and am I letting God control my pride? Am I, am I being rude? Am I being good? Am I forgiving people even when they don't deserve it? 
Am I persevering? Am I focusing on the watering schedule? Or am I producing fruit? Fruit that will last. So here's the ultimate point. Don't turn your tools into rules. Now, in this regard, I'm not talking about the things God commands. I'm talking about the rules and traditions we find comfort in, but that are not in the playbook for everyone that we're around. These might be things you find helpful, like they help you worship. They're ways that you express your worship. The danger is when I make my traditions rules for you. So friends, every one of us should be getting the Bible into us somehow or another because it's the Word of God. How can I know what God wants for me if I'm not getting his playbook into my life? Now, I will tell you, not out of pride, but out of necessity, I read the Bible about every day. But if I would say to you, in order for you to be a Christian, you need to read the Bible every day, shame on me. Because there's no command that lets me do it. As a matter of fact, if that's the truth, there, have never, there, there were no Christians until the 15th century because the 15th century is when they created the printing press. And that meant the scriptures could be available to people. See what I'm saying? Follow me on that? There's something about sacred music and how it elevates worship. I think it's holy. I think it's scriptural. But everyone hearing this sermon has your own personal view on what kinds of songs do that for you. There are songs that allow you to worship. Great. God bless you. But when you say, we all need to sing these songs or we're not worshiping, that's a theology from hell, my friend. It simply is. It's like the tradition of the Pharisees. See where I'm going with this? Look, we need to worship. I need to serve. I need to give. I need to commune with you at his table. I need to pray, so do you. But how you do that, how I do that, there might be a lot of freedom that we should offer each other and ourselves. See, when you follow Jesus, you will either serve him or you will serve you. You will either worship him or you will worship you and say it's him. Now those Pharisees, they said, hey, you need to get on the fasting schedule, man. You know what he said to them, basically? He said, yeah, my, my disciples, they will fast. Not today. Today, the bridegroom's in the room, and guess what, friends? You're missing it all. Shame on you. I'm going to ask you to do this. It's, it's hard, but I'm going to ask you anyway. And you might need some objectivity. You might need to ask somebody who you trust to help you with this. Just ask this question. Am I growing in love? Is there fruit coming from this that looks like love? There is nothing more tragic and more poison than when a person comes to Jesus and then they become less loving, less forgiving, less tolerant of others, more proud, 
more haughty, more unloving. That is the kind of fruit that our king will have nothing to do with. And Lord, as we enter into this moment, when we open up a little vial of the fruit of the vine, there's something that has to happen with us where we look at ourselves and say, am I producing the fruit, Lord? I need to remember again what I'm here for. Or, Lord, if I am, it's because of you, not me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus uses two metaphors to explain to the Pharisees a concept that will ultimately cause many of them to three years later place a crown of thorns on his head and nail him to a cross. And it's this thing that they could not accept, which is they believed their traditions and religions would save them, not him. It's a very, very important concept. It's really where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, for each of us today. And then he, so he tells the two stories, well, you can't take you know, a new patch and put it on an old rip because if you do, it'll create, create issues when that expands, you know, it doesn't match up. And I think the more, maybe the more vivid one for me is when he says, you don't put old wine into new wineskins, or excuse me, new wine into old wineskins, because if you do, eventually it'll expand because of the fermentation process and blow up the old skins. And he's just saying, look, guys, I'm bringing the new thing. It's the new thing. And I, I don't think it's a stretch of imagination to think that there's a number of people who are here listening to these words from Jesus today, and you're, saying, you're thinking, oh, do I ever need something new? Because the old stuff, it's ruining me. And I just want you to know that in, with Jesus, he says, and, he, and he'll do this for you every day if you'll let him, I make all things new. Whatever you bring to this moment, whether it's bad religion or it's a miserable life that's been lived on your own terms and it's ruining you, or it's your pride and your convictions that keep you from serving him, whatever it is, you can lay it before him and he'll make you new. That's the truth. We exist as a church to encourage each other with these words to help each other to find the new thing every day of our lives and to serve each other and serve our communities with the ability to do the new thing for God. And I'm glad you're a part of it. Thanks for listening to the Third City Christian Church Podcast. Please join us for one of our worship services at 9, 10, 15, or 11.30 a.m. in Grand Island and at 10, 15 a.m. in Broken Bow on Facebook Live and at thirdcityc.online.church each Sunday. For more information about Third City Christian Church, send email to podcast at thirdcityc.org. 
Call us at 308-384-5038 or visit us online at thirdcityc.org.